Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 24, The Nazis, Part 2. Last time we talked about how the Adventist Church wasn't ready for the apocalyptic challenge of Nazi Germany, and how they were seduced by the same cultural and political arguments that gave rise to the Nazis and adopted a position of appeasement as well. Now, some Adventists even positively liked Hitler. They, they lauded his great qualities, which they thought were very Adventist, his vegetarianism, his sobriety, and so on. Even Arthur Maxwell, an Englishman, not a German, wasn't sure of what to make of this new Germany, owing to a policy of constant disinformation that the Nazis spread. So whatever was about to happen, Adventists were determined to survive it. And we asked, at the end of the last episode, at what cost? Now in this episode, we are not going to be answering that question. Instead, we're going to raise the stakes by looking once more at the lengths the Adventist church in Germany went to in order to survive. And our story begins in 1926, when the Rhineland Conference, which was the largest conference by membership in the Central European Division, when they opened a new department, German Welfare. When a nation began their industrial revolution, that nation had to find a way to come to terms with the inevitably disgruntled worker class and rising wealth inequality that followed the revolution. One of the things America did, for instance, was to pass the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. Now, Germany had started their revolution late, and as a result, there were plenty of unresolved tensions with the working classes. The post-war environment, where millions of young men were now too injured or too dead to be counted as reliable factory workers or farmhands, sent the Weimar Republic into an economic crisis. One German artist explained that during those years, quote, shopping had to be done immediately. Even an additional minute meant an increase in price. One had to buy quickly because a rabbit, for example, might cost two million marks more by the time it took to walk into the store. A few million marks meant nothing, really. It was just that it meant more lugging. The packages of money needed to buy the smallest item had long since become too heavy for trouser pockets. They weighed many pounds. People had to start carting their money around in wagons. End quote. The inflation crisis had ended by 1924, and the upper society of Germany began to resemble that in America, with German women wearing ties and, and donning bobbed haircuts, heresy of heresies. But the inflation crisis was only solved by making Germany dependent on the U.S. economy, which seemed like a safe bet in the roaring 20s. Germany's leaders congratulated themselves for tying their battered ship to the titanic American economy. In 1929, that Titanic economy hit an iceberg and America's Great Depression became Germany's great nightmare. Germany was a nation that could just never catch a break, it seemed. Late to the Industrial Revolution, late to the social reforms needed for social stability, needed so that this new capitalism could work, late to the empire-building 
that England, Spain, France, and Italy, yes, even Italy, had been doing for decades, gobbling up colonies around the world. Germans wondered, what good is a government that cannot ensure we have food, clothing, and can stay warm in the winter? They might have wondered the same thing about their church. So this new welfare department made sure Adventist members in Germany had what they needed. But it didn't stop there. The work was led by an ambitious woman named Hulda Joost. A year after launching the first welfare department at the conference level, the West German Union adopted her cause and set up their own welfare department. By the end of that year, Hulda was in charge of welfare work for the Central European Division, in, including all three German unions, and she wasn't even done yet. No sooner had the third German union joined that Hulda petitioned to have the Avenus welfare organization she led recognized by the German government, which would allow her to solicit donations and take care of people on behalf of the government. The government then began to send recently freed prisoners to the Adventists to get them ready for society. Hulda Joost did all of this in a year and a half. She raised and spent the equivalent of nearly 200000 of today's U.S. dollars in aid for the poor and the sick, from children to the elderly. A network of 7,000 Adventists, which is a, a fair chunk of all the Adventists in Germany, they worked to mend people's clothes, hand out raincoats and boots, provide basic medical care. Hulda Joost then got hold of a property in Friedensheim, which was an up-and-coming industrial suburb on the south side of Berlin, and it was run as a hostel and a halfway house. Rooms were cheap. In the first full year of operation, 43,000 Germans were given a warm place to sleep and a healthy meal. The staff also helped the jobless to find work. In one report, church leaders rejoiced, quote, The distribution of welfare postage stamps was a source of liberal income to our churches, end quote. This welfare work in Germany was successful precisely at a moment where the church was struggling in other areas like education. Because in the waning years of the Weimar Republic, private schools were suspect. But the German church rejoiced that the welfare work brought them such goodwill in German society. And Hulda Joost became a star. The rise of the Nazis was a setback, all right? Because they looked at all the aid organizations, all the welfare organizations that had been authorized during the Republic, and they said, you guys are no longer authorized, you have to reapply. But it wasn't long before Hulda Joost had won the Nazis over too, and the Adventist Welfare Society became a constituent member of the National Socialist People's Welfare Program, as did the Salvation Army. Hulda Joost envisioned three great departments in the Adventist denomination. Evangelism, right, all those missionaries and pastors, and teachers in denominational schools, the medical department, which is self-explanatory, and the welfare department. Now, Joseph Bates and James White founded that first department, right? John Harvey Kellogg II, and so Hulda Yost imagined that she stood as the founder of the third great department of the Avenus work. And Yost was soaring. The General Conference noticed her and arranged for a letter from her to be printed in the review. She wrote very little for the review, likely because English wasn't her native language and because it didn't play that big of a role in the lives of German Adventists. 
but she was always present in its pages, being perpetually praised by prominent people. Take that alliteration. Even while Halda found success, the Nazis began requiring government employees, including Adventists, to work on Saturday. Publications were banned. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode. And the Nazis were once again tightening their grip around the church. Now, the division president, G.W. Schubert, noticed that when a Methodist bishop started praising the Nazis in America, the government began granting them privileges. If only the Adventists could find somebody who would go to America and praise the Nazis in public. Who could it be, I wonder? Oh yeah, Hola Joost. Joost already had contacts at the propaganda ministry, who were more than happy to help her plan the trip alongside the General Conference. In Washington, D.C., the Nazi ambassador, a man ironically named Luther, worked with J.L. McElhoney, who was months away from being elected General Conference president, to plan the trip. Referring to the rise of the Nazis, McElhoney declared that Yost was, quote, without question the Deborah or the Esther in this situation, end quote. American and German Adventists recognized that Joost's trip had to be successful so that the church in Germany could find some relief. Now, there's one detail I've left out of Hulda Joost's life so far. A detail that may shape your perception of her and of the church leaders in Germany at this time. I mentioned how Hulda started the church's welfare work in 1926 and took it to levels of influence no one had dreamed possible in 18 months. What I didn't mention was that 1926 was also the year that Hulda Yost became a Seventh-day Adventist. She was 39 years old. She launched the welfare ministry on April the 1st. Was she baptized in January? February? March? Is it possible she wasn't baptized at all when she began this ministry? But let's assume she was. That would mean that the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Germany allowed an energetic, charismatic, eminently gifted person who was still wet from the baptismal tank to become a division-level leader in a matter of months. And this woman would become the most prominent public Adventist in Germany. She's our Esther, our Deborah, who is going to save the church in Germany. She's going to be the bridge between us and the Nazis. Well, of course, that would come later. That's a lot of weight to put on somebody's shoulders, especially a new church member. Oh, I'm sure she was happy to bear the burden. She was the star player on the court, the one who wants the ball in her hands with three seconds left on the clock, the one who wants to take the shot and win the game for the team. That was her personality, right? I'm sure she would never have complained about all this responsibility being put on her, but you just got to wonder at this as a church leader. You've got to wonder at the wisdom of this. The concern with these types of situations is that the church is kind of at her mercy, isn't it? How do you ground her in the faith? When Esther has the fate of your people in her hand and is building bridges at the highest level, you worry a little, don't you? Isn't that just natural? She's up there in the court by herself. I mean, she's not a political pro. She could doom tens of thousands of members to a lot of trouble. If she's seduced by Nazi power, she could doom tens of thousands of members to a lot of trouble, right? Hulda Yost was walking on a knife's edge 
with the fate of the Central European Division in her hand. And it's crazy to think that she hasn't been a Seventh-day Adventist for that long. So yeah, the General Conference in the Central European Division knew how important this trip to America was. McElhenney met Hulda Yost when she disembarked from her ship in D.C. Yost was officially heading to the 1936 General Conference session, but the stops along the way were arguably the real purpose of the trip. She would end up speaking 140 times, often to thousands of people, from New York to Los Angeles, meeting with reporters, church leaders, and German consuls in all the major cities that she visited. She talked about the importance of building a church welfare organization and how things were going for the church in Germany. Avenus had heard a, a lot of mixed information about the Nazis, right? You remember Maxwell's confusion about it. And, and they were curious to get some firsthand information because here's an Adventist. Here's somebody who lives there in Germany, who's, who's on the front lines, and she's one of us. So she'll tell us what's going on over there, right? The Adventist church supplied an interpreter, Louise Kluser, to accompany Hulda Yost on her tour. Things went well until they got to Chicago, where the German consul organized a meeting for the Friends of the New Germany. The Friends of the New Germany was a foreign policy initiative designed to encourage support for Germany in allied lands. To join, you simply had to sign a statement, a statement with an unmistakable swastika at the top, announcing that, quote, I acknowledge the leadership principle according to which the League is being directed, end quote. The leadership principle, you may recall from a previous episode, it sounds suspiciously like German consuls were asking German-Americans to pledge personal loyalty to Hitler, right? The Führer. What's more, you had to affirm that you don't belong to a secret society like the Masons and that you are of Aryan descent with no Jewish or African blood. America noticed this little foreign policy initiative. At a meeting of the Friends back in 1934, a reporter observed, quote, the speakers, most of them using German, never fail to stress the fact that their hearers are German and that they owe their allegiance to Germany, end quote. For Hulda Joost to speak at a meeting of the Friends in Chicago, this was very much a political statement, wasn't it? Two days later, Joost was in Battle Creek opening the Sabbath with her brothers and sisters. She then told the Associated Press, quote, Hitler had devoted his whole strength and power to the reconstruction of Germany. He wants peace with all nations, but also wants to return unto Germany and the German people the mantle of self-respect which they lost at the close of the World War. The German people have implicit faith in their leader. End quote. They have implicit faith? In their leader, Hitler only wants peace. What about these rumors about the Jews being persecuted? Someone asked her. In fact, she got asked that question the most of all the questions that she was asked. That one was always at the top of the list. But she had an answer for that question. She said, quote, Communism more than anything else is to blame for the condition of Jews in Germany today. End quote. The headlines in Avenist journals did not carry these quotes. They emphasized the parts of her speeches about the welfare work and very much ignored her praise of Hitler completely. The non-Avenist press did the opposite. Imagine being this Avenist in Battle Creek. You just heard this sister open the Sabbath. You just heard her preach at the Battle Creek Church. And then you pick up the Lansing State Journal 
and read this headline. Avanist lauds Hitler's efforts. Or imagine seeing the Denver Post headline, a loyal backer of Hitler, which was written about her, of course. Closer, the interpreter, wrote to McElhaney that these speeches were turning into political rallies. An administrator at the Boulder Sanitarium warned Hulda to stick to preaching the gospel and to leave Hitler out of it. But how could she? There was such a difference between her religious and her political missions. Explicitly, she was invited by the General Conference to talk about her welfare work. The General Conference Committee decided, and I quote, Feeling that she will be able to bring inspiration and help to our churches and institutions in America, it was voted that we extend an invitation to Ms. Hulda Yost to give a number of lectures on welfare work in our churches and institutions, end quote. Okay, that is explicitly why she was in America. But implicitly, the political goal of the trip was to lessen the pressure on the Adventist church in Germany by praising the Nazis. And you could only do that if the Nazis noticed the nice things she said about them. It was inevitable that American Adventists were going to be riled up by her speeches. They wanted her to stick to religion and leave politics alone. But politics was the secret major reason for her trip. The Adventist church wanted to win tolerance from the Nazis, just as the Methodists had done. The Nazis wanted to spread Nazism in America. The members in America didn't know any of this and must have been confused beyond words why their denomination was parading this pro-Nazi Adventist around the country and letting her say things that never would have been permitted in the church pulpit. There was a generally a dim view of Germany during the 1930s. Why was their church leadership supporting this woman who was very obviously a Nazi apologist? Right, Hitler was a great guy. Hitler was a nice guy. Hitler is so misunderstood. Don't believe the things you Americans read in your newspapers. Why is our church sending this woman around our country to say this? Right? Like you're not sending an evangelist through these major cities parading him around, parading her around. You're sending this German Adventist, and the rumors began to fly that she was really being paid by the Nazi propaganda ministry as a tool, and that that made it even worse that the church was was parading her around. She was seen sitting next to conference presidents on five-hour train rides having a conversation. Was the whole church leadership, conferences, unions, divisions, general conference— Were they in collusion to push some kind of pro-Nazi view on us in America, right? Imagine you're sitting in the pews during this time. You're you're reading headline after headline as this Adventist. I mean, because it's big news, right? It's big news when an Adventist is is in all the newspapers day after day after day. uh, That that whenever she comes to your city, it's a big deal. The Associated Press wants to interview her. Others want to interview her. The German consul wants to meet with her. I mean, this is a big deal if you're an Adventist. You're in a small denomination. And you think this this woman made it? This 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 woman is our representative on the on the public stage? Why? Why is our church doing this, right? Because they didn't know that secret political mission she had to praise the Nazis. That was part of the design, but you won't find that recommended in the General Conference Committee minutes, will you? They didn't explicitly say this was the purpose, but it was understood that this is what she was here to do under the cover of coming to to speak 
to American Adventists about welfare ministry. The whole thing was just surreal. Adventist members sat in, in what must have been visible mental anguish as she, and sometimes she was up there with the, the local German consul, as she praised Hitler to the moon. Like you could tell that people were uncomfortable with this. Doesn't matter whether they liked Hitler or didn't like Hitler in America. It's just these are not the things that should be be, be said by an Adventist. We shouldn't be out here advocating, shouldn't be out here defending any any politician in public like this. The rank and file Adventist member, of course, could have no idea that these university presidents and conference presidents were just as wary of her as they were, that they just wanted her to go home. Hulda would write to McElhaney that everything was going so well that her speeches were being received so well the people loved it. Then her interpreter would write to McElhaney saying the whole thing was a disaster and people hated it. She spoke 140 times. And then Hulda Yost wrote a letter to Hitler, explaining that she was about to speak before 15,000 Avenist delegates from around the world and uh, lecture about German social welfare at the general conference session. She told Hitler about the question she gets most frequently in America. Quote, first, the Jewish question. Second, does the Fuhrer want a war? Is he a nasty man? And how does the Fuhrer relate to the religious denominations? Are the Seventh-day Adventists outlawed? Were the Germans compelled to vote? End quote. Compelled to vote, presumably, for, for Hitler, is what I think that question was getting at. In response to those questions, Hulda Yost affirmed, quote, It is to me a very great pleasure that in every case I was able to stand up for Germany's honor, justice for Germany, and German interests. End quote. Stand up for Germany's honor? Is that why you're in America, Miss Yost? All her supporters might say she's just playing the game she was sent to play. Suck up to the Nazis. Put on a good show for them. But church leaders must have been wondering what you and what I are wondering. How do we know whether it is still an act? That's the problem with secret agents, isn't it? How do you know who they are really using? Are they really on our side? Was Hulda Yost a Nazi in the Adventist church, using the Adventist church to spread Nazism? Or was she just an Adventist in the Nazi nightmare, dissembling and adapting to survive? Did Yost's letter to Hitler make it clear? In talking about this pleasure she felt to stand up for Germany's honor, she confessed, quote, It has not always been easy work, but I do it with conviction. End quote. She concluded her letter by asking for a personal audience. That will be, she said, the most beautiful reward for this great effort in behalf of our beloved fatherland. She wanted to meet Hitler. Now, there's no evidence that she ever actually met him or anyone in his inner circle, even though she spoke as if she knew his mind well. Hitler only wants peace. She'd never met him. She only ever wanted to meet him. That would be the most beautiful reward for this great effort for the fatherland. Was she still acting? If she was, the general conference should give her an Oscar 
the only Oscar the General Conference has ever given, because I honestly cannot tell. Local Adventist leaders were growing more and more annoyed with her. She, quote, hasn't helped us at all, one wrote. I haven't found anyone yet that really felt she did anything in behalf of the cause, end quote. When Yost made that point that the communists were really behind the attacks on the Jews, another Adventist leader noted, quote, This may be helping to create goodwill in Germany for our work, but I am certain that it is not helping the situation here in America. We want the goodwill of the Jews and the American people, end quote. Church leaders finally got Yost to tone it down just before the general conference session when she was going through San Diego and Los Angeles. When she arrived in San Francisco, the local consul got her to speak to local Germans, again in favor of Hitler, but she didn't bring that stuff into the general conference. Rather, she emphasized her Adventism. Under this new government, she told the delegates, quote, we have remained loyal to our principles. Every human being is our brother or our sister, end quote. She then praised the German government for providing, as it were, an umbrella over her work protecting her from the rain. She asserted that Adventists had perfect liberty and were tolerated well in Germany. But were they? While she was in America, the German government began cracking down again on Adventists. She heard about the crackdown, but she said nothing to anyone at any of her stops. She just smiled and kept praising Hitler. Returning to Germany, Joost was horrified, personally disappointed, feeling personally betrayed that her government would do that to her while she was over in America praising them. Her request to meet with Hitler was repeatedly denied. He was simply too busy to meet with her. Then an anonymous letter in the Washington Post blasting the lack of religious liberty in Germany was blamed on the Avenus. The writer, after all, was from Silver Spring, Maryland, which is where the general conference was. Propaganda ministry gave Joost a letter, told her to sign it as if it was from her, and send it to the Washington Post as a rebuttal. She wasn't comfortable doing that, so she edited it and sent a copy to the Review to publish as well. And the Review positively refused, feeling it was nothing but German propaganda. Joost did win a few battles on behalf of her church, however. When the Gestapo was about to come down on Adventist nurses, thinking that they were politically disloyal, she convinced the propaganda ministry to announce that nurses were in the clear. Because if the propaganda ministry could do that... Uh, you know, what's the Gestapo going to do? Contradict their own government? The propaganda ministry also began sending her around the world, including to England, where she was the guest of uh, von Ribbentrop, the man who would soon become Hitler's foreign minister. Joost was also tipped off to a Gestapo plan to ban the Adventist church. She arranged to have a meeting with the Gestapo leader, who was shocked to find this woman standing in front of him, and for one reason or another, the plan was abandoned. Joost would die in her 40s. After growing ill on a trip to Scandinavia, she was taken to an Adventist sanitarium in Denmark, where her fate was uncertain for a few months. But she died while working on a plan to meet Hitler yet again and plead for the toleration of her church. Of course, it never happened. And as Roland Bleich notes, quote, she did not live to see the true face of Nazism. End quote. And you have to wonder if she did, would it have changed her mind? Her interpreter believed that Joost was playing with fire. The interpreter wrote, quote, I feel she may bring to us in the future far more embarrassment than we can trust our brethren right close up to the problem in Europe to now see. End quote. That was an astute assessment. 
Yost was too close to the Nazi regime to see things clearly. Of course, Yost would have just said the Americans were too far away to see things clearly. But in the end, I think it's safe to say the Americans saw things more clearly. But Yost's problem wasn't just a matter of perspective. Her interpreter also learned that Yost thought the Jews got what they deserved. Whenever she was asked a question about the Jews in Germany, she was always more concerned about exonerating Hitler than showing any kind of empathy or concern for the Jews. It was always somebody else's fault that something was happening to the Jews. It was the communists' fault. Or in another occasion, she compared the, the, the fate of the Jews in Germany to that of blacks in America with the lynch mobs. After all, it's not Franklin Roosevelt's fault that, that black people in America are being lynched. Neither is it Hitler's fault that Jews are being persecuted in Germany. She was always concerned about making sure the blame didn't fall on Hitler. It was always somebody else's fault. But she never expressed that empathy, which is curious given that her ministry was welfare ministry and that her favorite text in the Bible, the one that at least that she preached on the most on behalf of welfare ministry, was that part of Isaiah 58 that talked about setting the oppressed free. The list of ethical concerns that we could raise with her is long. Of course, she intimated that close relationship with top Nazi officials, which of course she didn't have. She reassured American audiences of the great amount of religious freedom that Adventists had in Germany, which of course they didn't actually have, and she knew it. I mean, that's the whole reason why she was in America, was, was to win for Adventists in Germany more religious freedom. The Holda Yost affair is it's difficult to parse. We're no clearer to answering that larger question. Was she a Nazi true believer, using the church to spread National Socialism? Or was she an Avenist Esther, just doing her best in a land of little life-and-death decisions? Or maybe there was something of each going on, right? A woman trying to reconcile her loyalties to God and to country? Did she bend too far? Avenist leaders in America thought so. As her translator said, Quote, on some points, principle must be above expediency, end quote. That Hulda Yost helped tens of thousands of Germans with basic needs is undeniably heroic work. That she was a tool of the Nazi propaganda ministry, and that she largely cooperated with being a tool of the Nazi propaganda ministry, is also undeniable. That she was able to use her connections to help her church is also clear, undeniable. Avenus in America didn't see this side of her until long after she was dead. So it's not for us to judge her. But one thing is really interesting about her connection in Avenus history. No two individuals did more to orient Adventists towards a, 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 an organized social justice ministry than John Harvey Kellogg and Hulda Yost. And of course, Kellogg's work was tainted by his panentheism, and Yost's was tainted by her connection to Nazi Germany. That third department of Adventism, that welfare work, just never seems to have gotten a fair chance to get off the ground in Adventist history. Who knows what would have happened if Yost could have met Hitler? I mean, if anyone in, in Adventism was capable of persuading Hitler to tolerate the Adventist church, it was her. She was a captivating speaker. And the reason for that is, is exactly what she mentioned in the letter to Hitler. It was her conviction. She was absolutely certain in, in, in what she believed, in welfare ministry, 
that this was the work God had given her to do. I think she could have persuaded Hitler if he was willing to be persuaded. Would Adventism have enjoyed a higher status for the duration of the Third Reich? We will never know. Despite all of the hard work and tireless propagandizing she did on behalf of her country, Adventism was ultimately no better off, in the end, than if she had done nothing. Because she made the mistake that many other German Adventists made in assuming that the Nazis were arguing in good faith, that they were honestly concerned with the truth in, in wanting to do justice and fairness to their people. But they didn't. When you read Gestapo memos now, sometimes they mocked churches like the Adventist church who were trying so hard to win their favor, they'd make fun of them. Because they knew that they were never going to be impressed. They knew that they were never going to come around. And they laughed that the Adventists were so naive that they thought they would. So Hulda Yost expended so much energy, so much talent in trying to win protection for her church and for her ministry that in the end meant nothing. And with war clouds gathering over Europe, it was about to get a lot worse. And this time, Adventists would have no one in the German government to protect them. And we'll talk about that next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.